0: For many of us, the winter season is an exciting time. While it means shorter days, it also means the chance to enjoy fresh powder and time on the slopes or in the backcountry. As someone who's been enjoying winter sports for many years, it's hard to ignore the impact climate change is having on the places we all love to play. Extreme weather and warmer winters sometimes means shorter seasons. That's why I think it's important to talk to people doing something about climate change. Today's guest, snowboarder and activist Jeremy Jones, is one of those people. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Jeremy Jones is a pro snowboarder. He's known for pioneering big mountain freeriding and for founding Jones Snowboards. Jeremy has a penchant for going after challenges that aren't the easiest to tackle. As a snowboarder, he often travels to places only accessible by hiking in or helicopter so he can snowboard down fresh, untouched snow. As an activist, he tackles environmental issues that we as people who play outside are confronted with regularly. While he comes off as a casual guy, he makes things happen. In 2012, National Geographic magazine nominated Jeremy for Adventure of the Year. He's been a big part of the sport of snowboarding and for advocating for protecting the environment. We'll get more into his career and activism later in the episode, but I wanted to start back where it all began, with Jeremy's childhood on the East Coast. He grew up in Cape Cod, and as a kid, he and his older brothers often visited their grandfather in Vermont. That's where they fell in love with gliding down mountains. How did you get into snowboarding from skiing?
1: Well, I got into skateboarding and I, it was that kind of Bones Brigade era. And I just like totally took to that. The same with surfing. Like I saw surfing and was like, I need to surf and just love the concept of surfing. And so I, I don't know. I just, I was skiing and enjoyed it, but well, when I first got on a snowboard, it wasn't allowed at the mountain for three years. And then once it was allowed at the mountain, I remember getting off the lift and just uh, going down this run that I knew well and then probably been on it hundreds of times at that point. And it just went like three dimensional on mm. me and turned into this skate park. And I was able to do things that I dreamed of doing on a skateboard, I could do on a snowboard. And then it was. I was hooked. I never got on skis again.
0: Okay. So some of our listeners here are young. So I want to talk (laughs) about the eighties because I was born in 80. And I think there's a lot of listeners who don't know of a time when snowboarding wasn't allowed. Can you just talk to us about that and paint the scene of the eighties and people's perceptions of the sport at the time?
1: Yeah. So when I first started snowboarding, it wasn't allowed at the resort. And I guess when it was allowed, um, we would get a Burton catalog every summer and it would say what mountains were allowed snowboarding. And it and it really started taking off around 86, 87 was when I opened that catalog and my home mountain was in it. And I was so excited. You used to uh, have to get certified to go to the mountains. So I ended wow. up the uh, first... First thing in the morning on the first day of the season, I showed up and said, I'm ready to get certified. And I went out with this Lowell Hart, who was like the original snowboard instructor, which was cool in itself that there was such a thing. Probably one of the first in the country. So I went out, took a run, he said, You're good to go. And I got this little certification, and I was the ended up being the first person ever certified at Stowe, Vermont. I remember, and I went with my brothers to the mountain and they were, we were snowboarding in the backyard. And then when it was allowed, they're like, cool, I'll go ride the mountain. The mountain was way harder. It was icy. We were catching edges and we were getting yelled at. And we were kooks on the mountain, meaning, you know, we were struggling to get down the mountain. And my brothers were like, the hell with this. I'm grabbing my skis. But there was Real tension and uh, with the skiers versus snowboarders early on. And I feel like that went away pretty damn quick. But uh, it was an exciting time because by the end, like you'd show up and there were so few snowboarders, and inevitably by the end of the day, all the snowboarders would be riding together. And it was this real tight pack.
0: What's the difference between mountains on the West Coast and mountains on the East Coast?
1: Well, the biggest difference I would say is the above tree line terrain uh, because it's, as I say to my kids, like the mountains on the East Coast, are they have big vertical. Like Squaw Valley, I mean, uh, rarely are we riding more than 2,000 feet of vertical relief. And you go to Sugarloaf and Stowe and these bigger mountains back there and You know, you're more in the 2,500, 2,800 foot sustained, really direct fall line, fun snowboarding. And so I'd say that and more snow and just this ability to not be stuck on a trail. You can go anywhere being, you know, in this above tree line terrain.
0: Like back on the West Coast or in the East
1: Coast? I don't know anything about that. In the West Coast. On the East Coast, you're confined to a trail. Okay, that's what I thought. Big vert you get tired you get your leg burn and it's so when I do go back you know you really it's like wow my legs are burning this is challenging it's it's no surprise that it continues to produce really good skiers Mm. and snowboarders and then I'd say the biggest thing is you rarely see the sun it's cold it's windy it's icy I mean my kids whether we like it or not, they're spoiled. And just growing up on the West Coast with the sun and the soft snow, and so I think there's a grit that forms on the East Coast.
0: How do you turn a passion for snowboarding into a career? Well, that's not an easy thing to do. For Jeremy, there was a lot of crashing on couches and living frugally. When Jeremy started his career, snowboarding was a new sport. And he was one of the athletes paving new paths. Let's talk about actually making snowboarding your profession. How did you realize you were pretty damn good at snowboarding and you could possibly make it as a profession?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. When I came up, you know, there was no team managers and that I'd say. I first started racing and, well, we did everything. Back in the day, like Craig Kelly was the god and he could win a race, he could win a half pipe. So we all wanted to do that. I started out like everyone. I raced and I did half pipe. There was no slope style back then. And I really started kind of instantly winning racing and went, you know, virtually two years with not losing a race. And I turned pro at 16 and went to my first pro contest in Snow Summit, California. And I got third place in it, which I was incredibly excited about. And I got like 40th in the half pipe. And it cost 150 bucks to do each of them. And I'm like, all right, no more half pipe. And so then I was set off and and it was basically if I could win money, I could keep going to different pro events. It was really hard, and, um, and it was hard for all of us. It wasn't, I mean, I snowboarded with so many snowboarders. You know, Many of them, I would say, were better than me. And it's just that getting kind of breaking through into, like, where you can make a living snowboarding for me took, I mean, it wasn't until I was, you know, I started at 16 racing professionally, graduated high school in debt. Somewhat pulling it by 24, I would say. But my path, I did not look that awesome until probably I was 30.
0: And even at 30, like, were you ever sleeping on couches still?
1: I still sleep on couches. But yeah, it's actually at 30, you know, that's when all the questions start coming. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? Because at that time, there's so few pro snowboarders at 30. I mean, you sign a contract at 26 thinking a three-year deal, you think that's probably your last contract. So I definitely was off belay and had no backup plan. And it's funny because I go to schools and I talk to kids and stuff and, and I have kids and I tell them, go to school you can do both da 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 but i do look at like what got me through these some more desperate times or say working harder to heal injuries and stuff is cuz i literally had no backup plan
0: i think that's really interesting that you said i was off belay i mean there's an element of risk in doing what you did but if you hadn't taken that risk i don't know if you would have would you have worked that hard i know when i've always had a big cushion i haven't worked as hard to make it.
1: I agree. It's scary and it's kind of like this Grateful Dead album live without a net and that's kind (laughs) of how I've also felt and my brothers have felt the same way and it's just like, and it's hard work, meaning put in the time, do it more than anyone else in the world and you're probably gonna figure something out and find footing somewhere with that skill set.
0: So then, you eventually created Jones Snowboards, which is probably the best cool snowboard brand around today. I think. I'm guessing you never really wanted to be a businessman. I don't know. That's just my <laughs> gut.
1: Yeah i I mean, the two things I never wanted to do was make a snowboard film, like you know, direct a snowboard film, and start a snowboard company. And in like a six month period, I started both of those things and it was out of necessity and I mean I had the idea in May and kind of spent about two or three months trying to figure out how to do it and had pulled the trigger three months later so it was um, not something that I had been thinking about for a long time but I was with Rossignol for 19 years. I developed a ton of product with them. When I left Rossignol, my name was on almost 20 snowboards at that time, different bindings, boots. So I understood the process and I just wasn't getting the snowboards that I wanted. And I figured there would be a small niche of people that felt the same way. I greatly underestimated that niche but i went out and started it saying you know what i'm gonna we gonna start a snowboard company and if we only sell a thousand snowboards that's fine we're still gonna operate in the black so i just kind of started it with like i want this thing to operate and function for a long time even if it's at a very small level
0: Okay, so that was one key to your success, focusing on the boards you wanted to make, focusing on the customers you cared about. What were some other tactics you think have been part of your success?
1: I think the fact that I get to snowboard so much, that I'm off in my own little world. I'm pretty oblivious what everyone else is doing. I don't know much of what other companies do, but I am on snow. Over probably this past winter, I don't know, over 150 days a year. Wow. I'm with people from 10 years old to 60 years old. I'm immersed in it. So that, coupled with I'm obsessed with product, we spend, it's like our marketing is our snowboards.
0: When we come back, hear Jeremy talk about when he started noticing the impact of climate change on winter sports. We'll also get into the work he's doing with his organization, Protect Our Winters. REI believes that every action matters, especially in the fight for life outdoors. That's why REI is taking steps every day to reduce waste in the business, and they want you to join in. Make action a part of your life with the Opt to Act plan. It's 52 weeks of simple action to reduce your impact get active, and leave the world better than you found it. Nature doesn't have time to wait. Opt to act. Find out more about the plan at rei.com slash opt outside. That's rei.com slash opt outside. Early in Jeremy's career, he noticed winters were changing. Global warming has affected sea levels, glaciers, and snow. He decided to start Protect Our Winters in 2007. The organization helps outdoor lovers protect the places they play from the negative effects of climate change. You're a guy that spends more time in the mountains than anybody I've ever met, specifically glaciers. When did you start realizing climate change was a real thing? And it was going to impact the thing you love to do most. And I'm really curious about the glaciers.
1: Well, I guess jumping like specifically to the glaciers, when I was with Rosignol, I was spent a lot of time in France, a lot of time in Chamonix, and there they've lived amongst the glaciers for hundreds of years. So they have really good documentation and you can see the glaciers have been receding and you can see it dating back to the early 1800s. But then, as you start hitting the 1970s and the 80s, and then now, and even accelerating now, you see this acceleration. It's like you are seeing changes year to year. And people will always say, Well, glaciers always change, and they do, but not, they should not be changing in front of your eyes. And it's just this acceleration that coincides with what scientists have been saying for, you know, pretty loudly since the eighties that, you know, this burning of CO2 is causing the planet to warm and it's going to continue to warm.
0: Was there ever an aha moment where you decided I'm going to start this giant organization to deal with climate change and attack it head on?
1: There was an aha moment when I were again, like as you said, I spend a lot of time in the mountains and I get attacked. Like, who are you to tell me that the climate is changing? And it's like, well, I'm still alive today because I'm very good at reading the intricacies of snow. And, and so, for example, we have these low elevation places we like to snowboard. And it didn't take long to realize, like, wow, we're doing a lot less snowboarding at these low elevation places and then an aha moment i was in canada and i was hiking a resort and it was grass and i was with some locals who were early in their early 30s and they were talking about how they grew up on this mountain and they love it and showing me jumps and stuff that are grass and i'm like well why isn't it open anymore and they're like well it doesn't snow here anymore and this is right on the alaska um, canada border and i was like wow man that in like you're not that old to lose your ski area due to lack of snow again coincided with the scientists and and i was like i i never thought oh i'm going to start this giant organization but i thought wow i have a bunch of pro models i want to take a percentage of sales and use it to fight climate change and i just looking around, I'm like, there was nothing that I could relate to. I realized the outdoor industry as a whole wasn't doing anything. I'm like, you know, I should start something, but who am I to do this? So I really tried to talk myself out of it for a couple of years. And then finally, I just was like, this needs to happen. Good for you for getting involved
0: and taking action rather than just talking about it. So did you start it before you had kids or after you had kids?
1: I started it before I had kids.
0: And then having kids, has it changed you in any way in how you approach Protect Our Winters?
1: Well, we, from the get go, we talked to kids. We, we would always talk to kids. We we're talking to over 10,000 kids a year for a while. And it was always this uplifting thing because we'd explain the challenge and we'd go, here are the solutions and let's embrace the solutions and they'd be like, yes, we're all in, let's do this. And then 2016 happened and we just like took this horrible U turn. And it became much harder talking to kids and with my kids, for sure. And I think that where the kids give me power to fight, because sadly, climate is this very polarizing topic. There's people that think, you know, I'm the worst human in the world because I want clean air, clean water and clean energy. You know, it's really, it's not me that I'm fighting for. It's for these future generations, because I want to be able to look these kids in the eye and go, you know what? I was given a platform and I did everything I could with that platform.
0: If you're wondering exactly what they do, well, this past year in 2019, 10 representatives from the organization spent three days in Washington, D.C., going to 36 meetings with members of both the House and the Senate to talk about climate change. Three of their athlete ambassadors testified in front of the Senate about climate change and the effects they're seeing firsthand. In this next section, Jeremy's going to talk about some of the initiatives that Protect Our Winters is working on. Specifically, he talks about the CORE Act in Colorado and the ANWR bill. The CORE Act protects 400,000 acres of public land in Colorado from new oil and gas development. ANWR stands for Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's the largest national wildlife refuge in the U.S., and it's been at the center of political controversy since the 70s with people wanting to open it up to drilling for oil. In 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act legally opened the Arctic Refuge to drilling. So Jeremy talks about POW's work to get that ANWR bill overturned. I want to talk first about some of the accomplishments the organization has had. Can you share just a few really big wins that you guys have had?
1: Up until recently, I would say we have not had many reasons to pop champagne. And that's not just us. That's I speak for the, everyone working on climate. But the last couple of years at the state level, we have had some positive accomplishments. Recently, this Core Act in Colorado, uh, which is you know still has room to um, you know we need to get it through Senate, but that's a basically uh, protects a bunch of public lands that the extraction industry wants for um, extraction. This Anwar in the Arctic, there was a win there, which, you know, is slowing down, keeping, they wanted to open that up for extraction, which we had a win recently. And then in Nevada, there's been a couple and a few other states, these commitments to go, you know, 100% clean energy by 2050. We'd like to see it sooner. But so those have been some examples just in the last year that have uh, been positive.
0: Well, a lot of it is policy work, which is not easy. So how did you decide to get so involved and focus on policy work specifically?
1: Yeah, so when I started it, I never wanted to be in politics on it. And I don't know if I ever would have if I knew that's what I was, where the front lines was. But basically where we're at as a society today is we need large-scale CO2 reduction. And the only way we're getting that is through policy.
0: Policy and going to DC doesn't sound easy. It doesn't sound like something, I get it. You're a snowboarder. You want to be riding in the mountains, but you're doing it. So, how receptive have lawmakers and representatives been to what you guys are talking about and what you're asking them to do?
1: Well, so when we go to Washington, DC, I'd say about 70% of our meetings are with people that aren't voting how we want them to vote, but that we feel like we could potentially get them to vote for the climate. And it is changing for sure. I'd say the biggest change has been, I mean, you couldn't get a politician to publicly or at least a, say a climate denier publicly say the words climate change. They just did a full avoidance. Now they're talking about it and they have very crafted messaging on um they can there's very few actual like outright deniers and now it's we believe the climate may be changing we think that there's a possibility humans have something to do with it and we should research it some more and those are like eight words that basically mean, like, let's do nothing of real substance for it. So, again, we need to replace people like that and, you know, protect our winners as a bipartisan group focused on electing uh, climate champions. And unfortunately, right now, that's primarily been Democrats, but we're starting to um, there's a couple of unicorns out there, which are Republicans that are voting for climate.
0: So when you go to D.C., you take other athletes. What do you guys do, and what do you say?
1: So we will go it, – it, we've been working at the state level a lot um, as of late just because it was obvious we weren't going to get any um, – have any success at the federal level with the current president. And so we have a lot of state bills that we're trying to get them to sign on to. So we're pushing them on that. For example, this ANWR vote, we would go specifically – to congressmen that we felt, you know, hadn't declared if they were going to vote for it or against it and where we felt like they were on the fence. And we go in there and go, we want action on this. We represent this last time we had 30 people that I think represented 40 million Instagram followers and said, we have a big audience that wants you to vote this way. And we want to support you and we will support you when it comes time for you to get reelected. And At the end of the day, there's never been a climate denier has never lost their job because of how they voted on climate. And until a politician loses their job because they took a bad vote on climate, we're not going to see that much difference. But I do think in this next election, um, some people are going to lose their job because of their stance on climate. And largely that's because this X factor, which is the youth that is coming out in droves.
0: And youth is the X factor. So tell me more about this.
1: The youth, say 18 to 35-year-olds, have traditionally been greatly outvoted by the 65 to 85-year-olds. So naturally, the politicians do a lot more talking to 75-year-olds than they do to 25-year-olds. But in this last uh, midterm elections, it was record turnout. So that's the we don't really know how many are coming out. We know it's going to be a bunch. The youth really wants action on climate, understandably. And so the climate deniers have a major problem if the youth comes out in full force.
0: So what's your biggest battle right now that you guys are fighting?
1: Well, we are gearing up for this 2020 election. I mean, we see the the destruction That having an ardent climate denier running our country is, as I said, it's erased um, over 200 policies that were pro-action on climate and and embracing clean energy. So it really, with having, you know, this current president wins again, it's going to be really devastating to get real deal action on climate.
0: So how can we get involved? specifically with Protect Our Winters?
1: Get plugged in to Protect Our Winters, org. Get in our ecosystem. We will have a voter guide. We will connect you in the key places where we need to win. And then if you, you know, regardless if you want to be part of Protect Our Winters or not, we really... Need to win at the ballot box at this next election. So it's helped climate champions get elected. And that can be knocking on doors, that can be volunteering, that can be raising money, making phone calls, and getting your friends to do the same.
0: Okay, wait, let's talk more about that. So, as an everyday person, not a professional athlete, you know, I have a girlfriend running for a local assembly person in San Diego, and it's actually a big job. And climate change is a big deal, even in San Diego. But I think. I never wanted to get involved in politics and I'm having to throw a party for my friend because I really want her to get elected because the other person she's running against doesn't have a good climate policy.
1: I mean, that like gives me like spine tingles because that's happening all over the country. There are so many young, new men and women running for office. And at the like you said, these town council seats are hugely important. So it is time to get off the sidelines and help at every level. And we need new energy out there. So thank you for doing that.
0: I think people are stepping up. So if you're not a professional athlete, like what's the biggest thing you can do to get involved?
1: Well, you can, again, like these, depending on where you live too. I mean, some of these elections will come down to a thousand votes. And then specifically, like it's pretty clear and that protect our winners, you'll see it we have a very targeted effort in 2020 and in, in recognizing that we need to win in in like seven or eight key places and so if you have any ties, whether it's a relative or a friend in those key places, those things could come down to a couple hundred votes.
0: Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your work and stepping it up. I mean, you could easily just, ride a snowboard in the mountains all day, but you're actually getting involved. And I I really appreciate it. There's not a lot of people who do what you do. I'm now going to tell my friend, I want to throw another event for her, which I really don't want to do, but I feel like (laughs) we have to do it. What's the one message our listeners should take away from all of this?
1: Well, I mean, the one message I would say is we are in a critical time as a society and we need to act now on climate and we need to do everything we can to get climate champions in office at the, the town level, the state level, the federal level. So it's time to find your local climate champions and help them get in office.
0: The time to act is now. Climate change is happening as Jeremy mentioned, pay attention to what's happening in your local, state, and federal elections, and get involved. Make sure your voice is heard when it comes to policies about climate change, and let's work together to make an impact. It's time to act. Before I wrapped up my conversation with Jeremy, I asked him a wild round of questions. We get into everything from what he eats in the back country, his favorite gear, books, how to get his kids outside, and how you can get your kids outside, and of course, how he suggests we all live more wildly. I got some intel on you from a good friend of yours, and they told me to ask you, who's a better snowboarder, you or your wife? I heard she rips.
1: I knew. <laughs> That's debatable. We'll leave it at that. She's got. I think she has more grace than me.
0: What's your last favorite activity you did with your family?
1: That was outdoors. Surfing. Where'd you guys go? We were in Hawaii. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, just lovely. You know, my kids are now shoreboarding, which is was a big step up for them, which was uh, fun to be a part of.
0: What's the best piece of advice you can give to other dads and moms who want to raise ripping children?
1: Have other people teach them if you can, (laughs) and don't force the issue on slow play the sports that you want to do your whole life with them.
0: That's so funny. I've had to teach so many of my friends' kids how to surf. Okay, what's your favorite meal to take with you or make with you when you're hiking and camping backcountry?
1: I do uh, pesto pasta usually the first night with angel hair pasta.
0: That's impressive that you can take all that in the back country with you.
1: Yeah, that's why it's the first night because it's heavy.
0: Got it. Which mountain in the world has the best food?
1: Well, I in Europe, I love the you go to these on-hill restaurants and they're like 200 years old and they've been cooking their pasta in the same wow. pot for 200 years and the menu hasn't changed for 200 years and they offer like two items on it. I pref- I love the European vibes.
0: What is an entree you would get
1: at one of those amazing resorts? Um, well, it's I'm a casual vegan, which makes in Europe is very hard. So I would get, you know, generally there it's easy to be a vegetarian in in Europe. It's tough to be a vegan. Um, so I'd get some type of veggie pasta.
0: I love that you just called yourself a casual vegan. I've been calling myself a 90% vegan, a mostly vegan, but I'm just going to start calling myself a casual vegan. I love that. Okay, what's the most family-friendly mountain to ride?
1: God, I the small mountains around the country around the world are where it's at for the little kids. Like if, you know, the places you've never heard of or you know whether if you're in Europe, you go to a place you never heard of or these really small resorts throughout the country are the best.
0: Piece of gear you always have with you.
1: I always have pistachios with me. I don't know if that accounts for gear, but that is the one thing that I always <laughs> have. A full disclaimer, I am sponsored by pistachios, but wow. i um, here nor there, but I honestly always have pistachios on me.
0: Okay. What about, Gear you most gift to a friend, besides pistachios.
1: Gear when you have leftovers? I most gift to a friend. Well, snowboards for sure.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite book that you most gift to friends and recommend?
1: So I the most gifted would be Rules for Becoming a Knight, really small book that is great that I gift to teenagers, to adults. And then I'm reading this book right now. Stillness is the key. And I am going gonna, gonna to buy like 30 of those books and hand them out for Christmas.
0: Okay. So this is a little bit of a harder question. And if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. But I know there's some public figures in the mountains and a lot of private friends you've lost there. Like yeah. MC, Shane McConkey. I think Shane would have been
1: Did you know one of the him? most.
0: I didn't know him, but like I knew of him.
1: So sorry, I just have to. Since you asked about chess, is we had this deal with MC has had this beautiful ancient chessboard, and the deal was if you won, you got to keep the board, and you'd have to play in you know whoever's house. And so I won the last time I played MC, so I have this beautiful chessboard that's from MC.
0: That's amazing that you st- you have that and you won. So. I wanted to ask you, any of these guys would have been such good guests on Wild Ideas Worth Living. What would they say if I interviewed them for the podcast and asked them, you know, what's the best piece of advice they could give to people who want to live more wildly?
1: Well, it's tough to put words in someone's mouth, but I just, Shane would just be like, it's simple. You just do it. Um, Like, whatever. Life's too short. Why would you not do that?
0: What's your advice to others on how they can live more wildly and do what they love more, maybe even make a living out of it?
1: Well, the God, there's a lot there. But the first thing you got to realize is life is precious, as you know. I mean, you just mentioned three friends of mine that have died. I mean, I can't I feel like I've lost five friends in the last five months. You just life could end tomorrow. So let's just get that out on the table right now. And so whatever you think, you know, you're like, oh, I'd love to do that someday. The hell with someday. It's today. And you gotta grab a piece of it every day is what I do. I don't like to tell people, but I do work a lot and I'm in front of a computer a lot, but I Make sure I get out and play every day. Even in you know the summer and the winter, I'm allowed to because I'm a pro snowboarder. Um, that's my job. So I would just say, like, go for it. But you need to put in the time. It's going to be hard. If it was easy. Everyone would be a professional photographer or writer, or podcast, whatever it is. And so study, do your work, work your ass up, put your head down and pick it up in 10 years later and see where you're at.
0: With elections happening this year, it's an important time for all things climate change. There's so many ways you can make an impact, and I know it can be overwhelming on where to begin. But one way is by going to protectourwinters.org And you can see all the incredible work Jeremy and his organization is doing, and you can get involved as well. Thank you so much to Jeremy Jones for talking with me, for sharing with me about your work, and for doing the important work you're doing. We really appreciate it, Jeremy. And uh, thanks for also getting me hooked on pistachios. Also to Jeremy's friends and my dear friends, the Gartlands, thank you for giving me some insider tips on some fun things to chat with him about. Tune in week after next to hear from ultra runner and athlete Latoya Shante Snell of the Running Fat Chef. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, with writing and editing by Annie Fassler and production by Chelsea Davis. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas.